morning, everybody. I am Dave. I'm one of the pastors here and filling in for Randy this morning and then headed over to Creve Hall, but um, good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, what Carly kind of set it up there by reading the big idea of the week. Um, hey, man. Uh, what we're going to look at today is arguably uh, the most famous or maybe kind of infamous conversion story uh, in all of Scripture, maybe in all of Christianity. And uh, I, I think you could argue it certainly probably was uh, the most influential. Uh, the guy that we're going to be talking about, Saul, uh, we know him as Paul, had a pretty significant impact, whether that was from his missionary journeys uh, he was kind of the OG of church planting uh, back in the day. And, uh, and he accounts for about of the th- a third of the New Testament. Uh, so his writings uh, have impacted us uh, today significantly. So uh, he's written more about who Christ is, what he accomplished on our behalf, and how that can and should affect our lives. So um, we're going to read his story of his conversion this morning, all right? And then I'm going to teach on it for a little while. So uh, Jenny Gilbert, where are you at? All right. Everybody, this is Jenny Gilbert. Yes, she's going to read for us. All right, here we go. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, appeared to, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him 
him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is God's word. Let me pray for us real quick. Pray for myself. Lord, uh, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would be the teacher. Uh, just like uh, you are the active agent uh, in awakening our hearts uh, to anything true, to anything good. Uh, Lord, uh, would you awaken our hearts this morning to what you have for us uh, in this passage about our brother Saul's uh, conversion. So, uh, God, my heart and my mouth uh, as well, we ask this, you pray in your name, amen. All right, so um, I want to give us just a little bit of context uh, for where this sits, and I don't know if you've been here. If you've been here, great. You probably don't need a lot of what I'm about to say, but it's always good to, to remember for Saul as well as what's going on in the church, because this, it starts in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1 there, it says, meanwhile, right? So I don't know if you, uh, shows like Lost, where there's like all these different parallel scenes going on, Right that all of a sudden, you know, begin to kind of converge. There's a lot of parallel stories that are going on in the book of Acts uh, that is all talking about the birth of, of the first church, the early church, right? And we've been kind of looking at this. There's a theme that's going on really since kind of Acts 4, that there's, there's a lot of resistance, whether that's externally or internally, to the gospel going forward. There's a lot uh, working against, and people working against, and we'll see that today in Saul, working against the gospel going out because the church is only months old at this point, right? So it's very fragile. It's very, it's like a newborn baby, right? So uh, it's, it's new, it's fragile, uh, but there's a lot working against it. Um, in Acts 7, uh, Stephen, uh, if you remember his story, this is kind of one of those parallel stories. Uh, he had been seized because of the great signs and wonders that he had been doing that were pointing to Jesus. And he was a big part of the word of God spreading, right? And religious leaders, uh, that was some of the outside resistance and inside resistance from the synagogue were trying to shut this down. They stirred up false witnesses about him. And remember, he brought him before uh, the high priest uh, and the teachers of the law and the head of the Sanhedrin where he didn't shrink back, right? He instead, he kind of took him on a tour through the Old Testament, which they were supposed to be, you know, the masters of understanding and showed them how Israel... Uh, and them, but all of Israel had always been blind, had always been unable to see or accept the words of God's prophets that they had missed the message about the Messiah. And this group now, they had missed the message. They had missed who the Messiah was and they were clueless just like their ancestors were and they had killed the Messiah. And so they stoned Stephen, remember this? They stoned him and the church literally was scattered. People were terrified <laughs> Oh my goodness, if this is going to happen to Stephen, this is what's going to happen to me, right? So they're scattered all throughout, right? All throughout the known world at the time. But they didn't go out afraid. They went out as an army of preachers, right? They went out as an army of preachers preaching the gospel wherever they went. That's what Acts 1.8 says. They were witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. So what was going on in the early church? Even though there was all this resistance, all this persecution, God was flipping that. It's like judo. If you know anything about judo, judo is all about using your enemy's force against himself, right? God was doing judo with all of this resistance and using that for his mission. There was nothing 
that was going to stand in the way of the gospel going forward. Nothing could stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes for his church, his accomplishing his purposes in redemption. But one of the main characters, the guy we just read about, doesn't really know the part that he's going to play in that. Right? The way that God is going to use Saul in his redemptive plan. Right? And Saul, I think you could refer to him, I've referred to him this week as the chief resistor. Like if there was a resistor to what was going on right now, he was the chief resistor to what was going on right now. It says in Acts 1, or sorry, Acts 8, 1 to 3, and Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. Right? And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles so everybody but the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But listen to this, what they say about Saul. Saul began to destroy the church. You know, not just kind of slander it, not just kind of speak against it. I, I am trying to destroy what's going on here. Going, think about this, going from house to house he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Imagine someone walking into your house today and dragging you out of the front door of your house all the way down to the jail. Those who had been scattered, though, preached the word wherever they went. So the church was growing, the gospel is spreading. But Saul wasn't going to go down lightly, right? He was working hard to see that all of this stopped, right? And he was, he was a hard worker, right? I am not going to see a bunch of untrained Galileans and women steal my spotlight. Even in his own reflections, because he reflects, this, his conversion story is told literally three times in the book of Acts. And then he reflects on it a handful of different times in his epistles, aspects of what happened for him in this conversion moment. Even in his own reflections on his conversion in the epistles, he self-describes, he talks about himself on the other side of it, about how dug in he was to his position against Jesus, against the gospel, against anybody who associated with Jesus in the gospel, anybody who believed it. I was, I'm dug in, right, to my side. Here's what he says in Philippians, Philippians 3. It displays how unlikely, like Carly read from the big idea, how unlikely his conversion to Christianity was and how it was entirely an act of God's intervention, entirely an act of God's grace. So he's talking about having confidence in himself, his, in, in his flesh. He says, I have more confidence, reasons to have confidence than anybody else. I was circumcised on the eighth, the, uh, eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. What's he saying? I'm the Jew of Jews. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. 
When it comes to keeping the law, I keep the law better than anybody else ever kept the law. I, my religious pedigree is par excellence. I'm the man. I'm winning, right? I'm winning. This is how he sees himself. This is where his value lies, is what he's saying when he says that stuff. And what he's saying, when he's saying all that stuff, he's saying this, I am set in my ways. That's what matters. And so as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law, that group of people who he identified with, right? That's who he belonged to. That's where he got his identity from. They were having, because of what was going on with the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, they were having their influence, they were having their control, they were having their status, they were having their power challenged by this new group called The Way, right? That was the name, it says there, the, the group called The Way. It's not just a Christian radio station, but you know where they got the name now, right? That was the name for the Christians at the time. Their power, their status, their control is being challenged by this group, The Way. Paul, right before his conversion, I mean, he's at, he's at the penultimate moment of an identity showdown. This is my way, right? Or this new way, the way. And Paul, Paul, he's so committed to his way. Even though it was wrong. John Stott, one of the theologians who unpacked this very well, says he was utterly sincere, but utterly misguided. Right? And then this happens. This man who is completely committed to his way, this happens. Traveling, he's traveling in hand with arrest warrants, basically, from the high priest Caiaphas. Traveling in hand with arrest warrants for any Christians in Damascus. Right? So the gospel is spreading out from Jerusalem. Samaria, Damascus, we're kind of moving outward, right? And he's going, I'm gonna go get all those people and drag them back to Jerusalem because we're gonna contain this sucker. Right? Traveling with arrest warrants for any Christians in Damascus, Jesus stops him in his tracks and he goes, Stop, and I'm setting your life on a completely different trajectory today. He confronts him, he converts him, and he commissions him to a completely new way of life. Which those three would be great, three points for the sermon, but those aren't even the three points of the sermon. We'll get to those in a second. Paul, in recounting his own conversion in Acts 22, he, each account, he kind of shades in a little bit more of the experience. He adds a little detail of what Jesus said to him on the Damascus Road that will be important for us to consider as we continue through this. He says this, then he said, Paul saying this about, uh, about Jesus, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see his righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I've chosen you. I've chosen you to know my will. I've chosen you to see who Jesus truly is. I've chosen you to hear words from his mouth, and I've chosen you to witness. So be baptized. 
Have your sins washed away. And then he adds this thing, calling on his name. This is where we're going to camp out because this is where the Lord has had me camping out. So I hope this is for you. I know it was for me this week where the Lord took me in this passage. Calling on his name. That Paul, what was going to be changed for Paul was that he was going to be calling on Jesus' name for his sins to be washed away. Okay? Hang on to that calling on his name. So that's what happened for Paul. Those are the facts of his conversion story. All right? And we are all benefactors. Nobody in this room, whether you know it or not, it's like having a great, 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 great uncle that did something that set your whole family's trajectory, right? That's, that's us for Paul. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a benefactor from this guy coming to faith, right? But it would be really easy for us to say, well, okay, that's Paul's story, right? That's his story. But what about our story? How does this apply uh, to us? And there are three things that I think would be helpful for us to consider in Paul's conversion. Because we're not all called to be apostles, right? That office is closed, right? But we all are called to be witnesses, right? We all are called to be disciples. Randy nailed that home hard last week, right? But there are aspects of his conversion that are congruent. They are congruent with all of our spiritual rebirths. So here are the three things. The blindness we share, okay? the grace of sight, and the goal of sight. The blindness we share, the grace of sight, and the goal of sight. The blindness we share. So, again, it's easy to look at this and say this. Now, that's a dramatic conversion experience, right? Like, this is the guy that they're going to get to speak at the conferences, (laughs) right? Not me, him. That's, that's his story, but that's not my story. Are you sure? Like, I didn't have any blinding light, right? I wasn't walking with some buddies and got reduced to nothing. I don't have, you know, any recollection of Jesus audibly speaking out loud to me in a way that I heard, but nobody else could understand. I wasn't struck blind for three days while I awaited what was next, right? That's not my story. It, it makes for a good book, a good episode of Chosen, Right? And we aren't told why God chose to do it this way. Uh, we can speculate about that. Commentators speculated about it a lot. But although it is true, Paul is physically confronted and blinded here as a part of his conversion story. What's very clear is that there is a spiritual blindness that is already present in Paul. That's where I want us to camp out. He, he was, you know, sincerely misguided, right? He was not just had spiritual blindness, he was blind to his spiritual blindness, right? He was self-deceived about how blind he was. And here's the area in particular, specifically, that all of this religious effort that Paul was doing, right? In this moment, because he's persecuting the church in this moment, but even prior to this moment, all of Paul's life, that pedigree that I read for you from Philippians, all the religious effort that he was doing, and I'm doing this in air quotes for those who are listening later, air quotes, for the Lord, he discovers in this moment, he's shown in this moment, it's revealed to him in this moment, was actually against the Lord. 
It wasn't accomplishing what he thought it was accomplishing. Right? But if it was against the Lord, if it was working against the Lord, if he was working hard against the Lord, who was he actually really working for? I know this is a little bit of a brain bender, but hang on, okay? What was all the effort for? Why work so hard at something? Be so zealous for something. Because the further that this group of Christians, the way grew, the further he grew murderous in his heart, right? Murderous in his heart against the way. He was working hard and suffering hard to protect something that God ultimately came in and said, that's not what you should be caring about. You shouldn't be caring about that the way that you are. And you're acting like, you're deceived, but you're acting like, this is what I care about. You're doing this in my name. You're acting like this is what matters to me. When what is really going on is your fanaticism shows what you're really caring about. All of your effort, all of your work, it's all trying to figure out the way to what your heart most deeply longs for. But that's different than the path you're on. And the only way you're going to get off that path is for me to intervene. Jesus is stopping Paul, Saul, in his tracks and saying that. In Acts 26, Paul recounts on his conversion again, shares something else he heard from the Lord recounting this. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was an instrument that shepherds used in that day to actually direct sheep in the direction that they wanted to go because sheep are constantly, and we're compared to sheep constantly in Scripture if you don't know that, constantly wanting to go in the direction different than the shepherd wants them to go. And a goad was this sharp object that they would drive the sheep with. So Saul, you know, again here, he adds something. He's saying when, when the Lord asked him, why are you persecuting me? He says, it's hard for you. You're kicking against the goad, Saul. You're kicking against the direction that I am taking you and I am taking others. You're kicking against my redemptive work for you and for the world. My plan, you're kicking against a battle you can't win. And guess what? When you're kicking against the goads, you're suffering to do so. You're working hard to kick against those goats. It's hard for you, isn't it? You're working hard, aren't you, Paul? When Jesus sends Ananias, man, there's so much we could talk about in this passage. When Jesus sends Ananias to go basically heal Paul of his blindness and welcome him into the fellowship, he says something else. Uh, very, very interesting. I would just tell you that when Jesus decides to say something, he, he doesn't, um, 
he's not haphazard with his words. He's very intentional, right? And he says something to Ananias that really just got a hold of me about his plan for Paul that I think gives us a glimpse into what Paul was so blind to that he was truly suffering for. And he says this, right? Go to this man. He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we know that Paul goes on to suffer, and he suffered greatly, right? Shipwrecks and beatings and abandonment and beheading eventually, right? But I don't think it's just about the future suffering. I think when you say that, the way that he says it there, the way that that's translated, it's almost inferring, I know that you're suffering, but I'm going to show you how much, right? I'm going to show you how much he must suffer for my name. I wonder when Paul, when Paul was coming to the grips with this, if he was like, wait, my whole life has been one giant religious sacrifice. You right? I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I keep the law perfectly, right? I keep it better than anyone else. I'm a part of an elite group of religious people who add nuance and detail to the law in order to make it even more impossible to keep so we can keep it and feel better about ourselves than everybody else. Why am I belaboring this point? Everybody's like, please stop. Because it's so insanely familiar to me. And I, just like Paul, have lived blind to the same thing Paul was blind to, and it's namely this. Paul didn't see that in all of his goodness, he was suffering for his name, not the Lord's. He was working hard for his name. And God was shining a light on his blindness to that. He was blinding him to stop him, to show him you're blind to that. That Paul, he wasn't interested in being named righteous because of Jesus and what Jesus did. He wasn't interested in a righteousness that needed to be given to him by grace. He was interested in a righteousness in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man that was something that he earned, right? Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. He says, he's lost all things for the sake of Christ. He says, I consider them garbage not having a righteousness from my own that comes from the law, but that which is through Christ or through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the shift that's happening for Paul. That was what had to happen for him. Because Jesus knows something about Paul. He knows something about us. That because of the fall and because of our sin, we are all suffering for some name. We are passionate to get a name. We are passionate to make a name. It'd be something I'd encourage you to wrestle with this week. What are the names you're suffering for? Right? Approved? Here are some of the ones I wrote down. Successful? Skinny? Beautiful? Enough, smart, belong, good parent, good spouse, 
We are all suffering for some name. And the question is, is whose? We are all calling on some name for our rightness. The question is, is whose? I got to go back to my hometown last week uh, under kind of hard circumstances to move my parents into an assisted living uh, situation. My dad has Parkinson's uh, and isn't well. Um, but every time I go back to my hometown, I go stay in my parents' basement. Uh, lots of stories in my parents' basement. But there's a lot of nostalgia. But similar to Paul having like three days to reflect uh, in blindness, oftentimes I find myself reflecting when I'm home. And I routinely have this experience when I'm home. Um, and there's a lot of gratitude uh, when I go home, but there's also a lot of shame when I go home. Uh, because it's a place that I made a ton of mistakes. It's almost like when I get back there, Satan gets out this giant spotlight and shines on all my failure. I made a lot of poor choices. I sinned greatly. But the thing that I felt acutely this time, and I think I felt it acutely this time because of this passage, was how much of a hypocrite I was. Because when I lived in that house and when I went to college at Taylor University, on the surface, I looked like such a good dude, but I wasn't. I wasn't a good dude, but I worked really, really, really hard like Paul did, trying to posture and trying to create that image, trying to, suffering for a name, Dave Burden, ah, right? Because that's what mattered, what people saw and what people thought was what was true. My righteousness was a comparative righteousness. Don't you see that that's what Paul was saying when he's saying in Philippians 3, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He's talking about comparing himself to everybody else, and that's what's going to give me my name. It's true of Paul. It's true of me. And just like Paul, I spent the majority of my years completely blind to it. Still can today. And similar to Paul, the only way that I know I began to see this was Jesus had to stop me in my tracks and intervene. He had to reveal himself to me. He had to reveal myself to me. And I think Randy said it last week, me loves me some me, right? Because without seeing myself correctly, I can't see him correctly. And I'm likely then just gonna be looking for a God of my own imagination and supporting a God of my own imagination who supports me in the ways I like to think. Paul was blind before he was blinded and he was suffering for his name. He was calling on his name, not the Lord's. Is that true of you? I know it's true of me. Is it true of you? Because if you've been truly converted, if you're in Christ this morning, you, you will, don't worry about it. I'll talk about this in two minutes. You will revert, revert to that suffering for your own name sort of living. Paul did too. It's okay. Romans 7 talks about that. But if you've really been converted, you've at least had some moment of reckoning with Jesus where you've come to grips with the fact that your life, whether it was religious or irreligious, was all about you and your name. And if it was ever going to become about anything other than that, Jesus was going to have to intervene. 
He was going to have to give you spiritual sight. He was going to have to bring us from darkness to light. He was going to have to make us his chosen instruments. That's part of conversion, is coming aware to our blindness and being humbled, being reduced in some sort of way, seeing that you don't get it, and that is getting it. That Jesus came after you, whether it was in as dramatic a fashion as Paul's or not, it's as dramatic. And that's point two. You received the grace of sight. You were that blind. I was that blind. I was that all about me. Even being religious and doing good things was all a giant you for me for me. Right? But that didn't, Paul's unworthiness didn't make him unuseful to the Lord. Praise God. <laughs> the grace of sight, Proverbs says, eyes that see and ears that hear, the Lord has made them both. Ezekiel 36, something, a passage Paul would have been so familiar with, right? In the prophets, says that God has to give you a new heart, has to give you new spiritual eyes, has to give you a new spirit, has to give you a new freed will to be able to see him, to hear him, to follow him, to be about him. Paul knew that passage. He could quote that passage, Right? but he completely missed it because the only way you see that is this for grace to work in your life. So the blindness we all share, the grace of sight that we all need to receive, and lastly, the goal of our sight is this. This is true about Paul's conversion and it's true about our own. When you get converted, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God I am what I am, so I'm not confused anymore. I'm not bragging about being the Pharisee of Pharisee and the Hebrew of Hebrews. It's God's grace, I am what I am, right? But what does he say? That grace to me is not without effect. He doesn't just transform me so that I'm this nice little trophy. He puts me on my shelf. <laughs> he transforms me to send me out into the world, right? And Paul's agenda gets changed. Our agenda gets changed, right? I mean, it happens right there. The Lord sends Paul back right back into the fray. You go from calling the shots in your life to following the leader. You obey the Lord rather than resist the Lord. You stop kicking against his goads and you go with the flow. That's how you know if you've experienced the grace of Jesus. Your life begins to be marked by being suffering or passionate about a different name than your own. And you're willing to suffer for others to know the freedom that you yourself know. That's what Paul's life was marked by now. That's why the Lord says, this man to Ananias is my chosen instrument. You hear that? You should think like an electric guitar, right? You, you are my instrument. Right? I'm going to make some noise through you. A beautiful noise. I'm going to go public through you. You're my instrument. And just one of the ways that we see that happening here is, is that it changes. He says this, I'm going to involve you in relationships that previously you would have avoided or seemed impossible to you. I mean, this, the bringing together, you should meditate on that, of Ananias and Barnabas and the apostles with Paul. Everybody's terrified of Paul, right? And they should be. He's a maniac prior to this, right? 
But the gospel reconciles relationships that felt impossible prior to that. These two men, Barnabas and Ananias, they welcome Paul as a brother. They welcome him into the community and vice versa. I got to close and then I got to (laughs) go. Would you dare to believe that you've been set free from suffering for your name and you've been given a new name? From enemy of God to friend of God, from orphan to son or daughter, from bankrupt to heir, from hopeless to holy, from insecure to secure, from unrighteous to righteous, from outsider to in. And I'll close with this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, invite you to do something, and that's this. If your conversion story seems less spectacular than what we just talked about with Paul, it may be because you've gotten out of touch with the depth of your sin. Now, every time you go back to your old basement, right, (laughs) it's going to be an opportunity for shame. The enemy is always going to want to shame you with your past. Paul had a lot of past that he had to deal with that I bet he many days felt like discredited him from being effective in the ministry, right? How could God use a guy like me? When we go and look at our sin, right, it's always an opportunity for shame, which is just deflated pride, right? That's what culture teaches us to do with our shame. Do something good to kind of cover over it. Cover over your shame with more effort, right? More good. If the good outweighs the bad, then you're good enough, right? That's not the gospel, So if you're going down that road, stop. Ask somebody to help you stop. Because the gospel is this. Here, I actually get to draw like Randy. Remember? Here's the gospel. My understanding of my sin gets greater. My understanding of his grace gets greater. The cross gets bigger. Not smaller. It gets bigger. Paul had time to think about his sin, and it made Jesus get bigger. Right? Because he became less and Christ became greater. So if you look at your sin this week and your hearts are condemning you, that's not the gospel. But if you're looking at your sin this week and your appreciation of Jesus' grace is growing, there you go. Right? Because he has set you free from suffering to give yourself a name. And he has one for you. Right? And he's set you free to live in it. Let me pray for us. Lord, Thank you uh, for how you use this word in my own heart this week. Uh, I pray now uh, that you would use it in whatever way you see fit um, for my brothers and sisters here, that you would set us free from those uh, who are suffering to make names for ourselves or who are calling on our own names and our own righteousness, Um, but that you would give us even just a glimpse into ourselves like you gave our brother Paul, who went from calling himself the least of the apostles to calling himself the chief of sinners. The the older he got, the more broken he understood, Lord, he was, but that didn't make him self-deprecate. It set him further free uh, to shine a light on you because you had chosen him by grace and grace alone. Um, Tune our hearts to your grace. Tune our hearts to your grace, Jesus, in your name, amen.